laparoscopies, which is a lot of our cases. Yes. So there, there, there is some evidence that um, equal ratio ventilation, meaning a one-on-one IE ratio, yep. is probably beneficial in one-lung ventilation and pneumoperitoneum. Okay. And yeah. that's presumably just because when you when you spend more time in inspiration, your lungs... You're Welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week I have a guest, uh, Lloyd, Dr. Lloyd Green, who's a colleague of mine, and I'm just going to introduce you, Lloyd. Uh, I'll give you a bit of a, a bit of a spiel that I know about you. So Lloyd and I did the um, the, the part two exam together a few years back. We won't mm. say won't say when because we'll give away our age. <laughs> and we've been working together at King Edward for um, quite a long time now. He's a consultant and he's this here as well. Originally born in Namibia. I think you went to med school in South Africa, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. yeah and, um, Stellenbosch. And at some stage you worked in far north Queensland in Weeper for in the in the rural setting. Five years. For five yeah. years, yeah. yeah. Were you a uh, GP anaesthetist there or was it just a GP? No, just a GP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you did, you did some of your anaesthetic training in Queensland and you finished over here, is that right? Yeah, I did I did a year of ICU in Townsville. That's right, yep. yeah. Before <coughs> starting anaesthetics in, in WA, yeah, in Perth. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for coming along, Lloyd. So Lloyd gave us a really good talk the um, uh, a couple of days ago on um, post-operative pulmonary complications and lung protection ventilation strategies, uh, which is an area. Do you want to tell us how you what uh, what made you decide to sort of give us a talk on that? What piqued your interest? Yeah, my interest was basically piqued because I've seen so many times as the DA or after hours, someone everyone has gone home. You get called. This patient sets is low. Can you come and see them? And um, I thought, is there something we can do? differently or is there some ventilatory uh, input that we can have or intraoperative input either from a surgical or anesthetic point of view to to to, to decrease the um the incidence of this and i started reading and my main interest was uh um lung protective ventilation strategies yeah and then i thought i'm going to do a talk on that or presentation and the minute i started reading into it i thought you've got to do post-operative pulmonary complications as a whole because that's just one yeah so sort of the, the, the lung protection ventilation strategies are interesting because it makes us feel like we can do something to make a difference. Yeah, but it's much but, um, broader than that. But, but, but I think in order to understand which strategies to use, um, you probably have to have a good understanding of what actually uh, post what, what are the post-operative primary complications in the first place and how do they come about. Yes. So I guess so, so I agree with you. We were going to start <coughs> to try and... Um, so. For those of you who are listening, we are going to uh, this the sort of plan for the podcast is we're going to start with a, like a, a hypothetical case, which is just based on uh, like a common scenario that happens here. And I know Lloyd's had to look after a couple of my patients that are fit into this scenario <laughs> over the years uh, on the evening shift, and um, and then we'll just go through some of the demographics and the and the the evidence and, and explain the physiological things that come about uh, and cause primary complications. And if you if you listeners out there if you can hang in uh, till near the end then we'll get to some sort of useful um practical things that we th- that you might find useful if if you're an anesthetist uh when you're in theater you know and about how you can maybe um y- use on your, in your or in, in, integrate into your everyday practice to use does that sound good yeah cool that's okay what about tell us about this um hypothetical case which so, is not based on a re- uh, on one case but maybe is just very similar yeah, to lots of things you've seen got called to recovery um just after the round and said after the handover round can you come and see this lady in recovery uh, with low sets that was basically the phone call so I turned up in recovery and there was this middle-aged lady who's just had seven and a half hours of surgery for total abdominal hysterectomy bilateral salpingo ophorectomy and lymph nodes and um, as you walk in, you, I, I noticed that she was on a Hudson mask and it was at full bore, the oxygen flow. There was a recovery nurse hanging onto a jaw and, and she tolerated a Goodell. Now, for me, someone tolerating a Goodell yeah. is always a bad sign because it's quite stimulating to the nasopharynx. And, but the long and the short of it is that um, we, we sort of want, started looking at her ordered x-rays and, and I did a blood gas on her because she had an arterial line in situ and from her blood gases I could see a PCO2 of about 72 and a PO2 of high 60s and I just yeah. knew this patient was in trouble and 
Yeah, and I remember years ago, I, I, I went home for the evening and you were on the evening shift and I had a patient that, I, that I'd had in theatre who was also, um, I can't remember all the details, but, but had some um, intra-abdominal procedure and she she was um, difficult to rouse and she had um, low, and was needing high um, high FiO2 and I think you did a gas on her and she was a, a PCO2 of 100 needed yeah. intubation and transferred to ICU. Okay, so why don't we talk about? Um, so these are th- those are that's you know sort of the sort of thing that you might the extreme uh, extreme version of some of the things you might see postoperatively if um, things don't go as well as they should. What is um, so? So just uh, as a comment or as an aside, yeah. um, this is not an uncommon occurrence. As all no. of us who's done the DA and the PM shift can tell you, it, yep. it happens quite, quite quite regularly that we call to a patient with low set. Yep. And just on my reading. Postoperative pulmonary complications is probably amongst the most common postoperative complications yep. in surgical patients, and what? even in, in, in some publications, even a higher incidence than than, than cardiac complications. Yeah. Um, and and of the pulmonary complications, the most common one is respiratory failure postoperatively. Yep. So. What's a good definition? So, so there are so there's been some groups who've got together and consensus statements and things, which we'll get to later. But yeah. What's the definition, and what are the main respiratory disorders that we see? Have you got, got that in front of you? Yeah. So, so one of the main respiratory disorders we see is, is respiratory failure, which is which is based on a making different definitions, but based on an either uh, an, an F, um, a saturations on room air. Yep. Uh, or P, uh, yep. SPO2 so. on room air or a, a PF ratio. So a PF ratio of over 300, which means the your, your, your insp- your, the ratio of your arterial oxygen pressure over your FiO2, your, your inspiratory so, so, fraction. So it's a failure to oxygenate. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the patient's um, they're either sets are okay, but they're needing a huge amount of oxygen to get there. Yeah, but they are... There's it's it's a composite definition. Like yeah. there, there are many different uh, conditions that that qualify as a postoperative pulmonary complication. Yeah. So basically, what, what are the main ones? So, so the your list. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a list of of of, of the main ones. Um, so so the main ones that they that they found and that they've looked at is things like um, we said respiratory infection, respiratory failure, pleural effusions, atelectasis, pneumothorax, bronchospasm, and aspiration pneumonitis. Yep. is probably the, the most common ones that are seen. And we talked about this before. So so um, if it's to be sort of like to fit in the category of a post-operative pulmonary complication, it's either because um, a lot of patients have pre-existing lung disease. So it's either um, worsening an exacerbation of, pre- of something yeah. that's already there yeah. or something completely a new. new uh, yeah. A new pulmonary... Uh, a new pulmonary dysfunction. Dysfunction that, that wasn't, wasn't there, there preoperatively. Yeah. And, and that sort of affects the patient's yeah. clinical picture or outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely, um, you might have mentioned or not, it affects their um, their stay, doesn't it? So one of the oh, reasons why they stay in hospital absolutely. longer. And Length of stay, for, yeah. for, for one. Um, often the need for re-intubation or even even non-invasive ventilatory, ventilatory support means, yep. m- means transfer to a, to, to a higher care facility, which yep. means an increasing cost. Yep, or um, even just oxygen and staying in two, day, two or three days longer than yeah. if they didn't have it in the first place. Yeah. All those sorts of things cost money, yeah. and you know if you're immobile in bed because you're on oxygen, you know you can get other complications. Um, all right, that's good. So it's re- so really we're talking about patients um, uh, who are having general anaesthesia. Um, yeah, I know. I know this podcast is um, obstetrics and gynaecology, but we're really we're probably talking more about the gynaecological patients having general anaesthesia here. Um, is there anything else? Were you going to talk about the evidence base and the consensus statements? Yeah, we'll just so briefly touch on those. Yeah, this inconsistency on the definition or what constitutes a postoperative a PPC, a postoperative yep. pulmonary complication, and um, the inconsistency makes it difficult to then compare trials. Yep. So a few a few groups, particularly in Europe, has got together and decided to do consensus statements on on, on what constitutes a postoperative pulmonary complication, and the two. Most common ones is one is called EPCO and and the other one is called Step Compact. Yep. And and EPCO EPCO is just a, an abbreviation for European Perioperative Clinical Outcomes, um, and it's a combined statement or, uh, uh, by the European Society of Anesthesia and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. And in 2015, they got together and um, 
they published this a statement on perioperative outcome measures okay. as a whole, but which included postoperative pulmonary complications as okay. part. So we're just going to talk about the pulmonary stuff, not Correct. not all the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think we've already talked about the definitions, you know, the seven things that they yep. that they focus. So on. they've identified or focused seven conditions that we've already mentioned, and um, yeah. So a little bit boring for some people, but we like, I don't know, Lloyd and I, we like physiology. I reckon we should go over. So why is it, and, and some people who are listening might not have this straight in their head, why is it that someone who comes to theatre and gets a, you know, anaesthetised, has a brain turned off, to put it bluntly, and paralysed sometimes, and then has a plastic tube put in them and they get um, air blown in and out of them. What are the physiological reasons yep. why they then, are, are after surgery, have problems with their respiratory So it's system? one of the reasons I wanted to look at this because yeah. I think we get someone with a SATS of 97, 98 on room air, they get an operation and they get to recovery and it's 88 and 90 and we struggle to... So what did we do? Something yeah, We've happened. done stuff to them, haven't we've we? We've done stuff to their... Things change. To their gas exchange yep. that we've done, either yep. us or the surgeons or a combination of both of us that's, yep. that's done that. So yep. so what is the change in pulmonary and this physiology? Is, sorry, just before we go on, and mm-hmm. the reason, just trying to keep the listeners listening because <laughs> they might flick to the more interesting uh, podcast uh, uh uh, in a second, if uh, if we don't hang them in here, but yeah. but this is, I think it's important to sort of understand the this if you want to then understand when we, the things, the tips and tricks that yes. we're going to talk about, or the practical things we can do in the next part of the podcast. Correct. If we know what we've done or how we've caused it, yeah. or potentially, then we could probably have a, a reasonable plan of how to avoid it or manage it. Yeah, or mitigate it a bit. Or mitigate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. So, in intraoperative, what have we caused to the lungs? So, personally, we start with our drugs. All the drugs that we use has some effect, mostly on respiratory drive. And, and the, the response to hypoxia, yeah. an impaired response, I should say, to hypoxia and hypercarbia. And then just lying someone, for someone just going supine, we've, we changed the physiology of the lung of the lungs, as we all know from part one. Well, part one sorry, the cast is a bit more than just part one. And these <laughs> yeah. So the um, first part, maybe let's elaborate. So the first part, you know, if you give people propofol, sevoflurane or opioids, all those drugs, you know, normally when you or I, if you were hypoxic, Lloyd, um, if you if I stuck you at base camp, uh, you'd you'd, you'd breathe really faster. Fa- you take deep breath and yep. you breathe faster because because yep. your brain and you will say more oxygen, please. Yeah. But if we give people propofol, fentanyl, yeah, you know, all the drugs that we give them, that sort of turns that off. And so even if they're set to low in recovery, um, they should be saying to themselves, their brain should be saying breathe more, but they don't. It just doesn't because yes, we've suppressed because we've got rid of it with all our drugs. Yeah. 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 And, and then certainly, the, as, as I said, lying someone supine. So now we've we've shifted the the position of the diaphragm, if I can put it bluntly. Yeah. And that decreases the functional residual capacity or the FRC. Yeah. So it sort of compresses the bottom of their lung. Compress the and bottom so of the lungs. The, collapse of small airways. Yeah. So that usually the bottom of the lungs is full of um, air and oxygen, and it's like a storage where we yep. store oxygen. But because we've squashed that, we, they lose it. Yeah. And. Our induction agents yep. and definitely our inhalational agents, we know that they all have an effect on the neuromuscular junction. That's besides the neuromuscular blockers that we use anyway. Yep. So with the, with the muscle uh, weakness uh, in coordination, because it's yep. not just weakness, but there's coordination of respiratory muscles that's also affected yeah. so by they're breathing and the position. So they can't breathe. Well, their breathing strength and force is decreased. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and... The, the important thing to remember is that these changes in physiology persist even after we've woken up the patient, as we yep. say, or we thought we've woken them up. Because in PACU or the post-anesthetic uh, care unit, there's yep. still ongoing drug effect, yep. as, as we expect. But now we add to that pain, yeah. which, which, which um, limits muscle, uh, respiratory muscle excursion. Yeah, that's right. The, especially if you put a big min, midline cut down the middle of the... Um, abdomen and, and suture it up and that's really yeah. painful whenever they try and breathe so they don't take deep breaths and well they they're, they're you know inhibited and we've we've just spoken about the the collapse as we say or atelectasis of the small airways if we've done nothing to 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 blow them up again we get to recovery they're still going to be deflated so you yeah. have ongoing atelectasis per se <coughs> yeah so and, um, so the small airways let's just elaborate that a bit so atelectasis is where they're like the small airways at at the end of the sort of Journey of the, you know, just before the, the, tree, elbow, the, the bronchial tree. The bronchial tree, yeah. Mm. Um, 
if they collapse on themselves, then the gas that we breathe in through our mouth can't get to the alveoli where the blood's going past and it wants to pick up the oxygen. Yeah. So there's like a little blockage, isn't there? So you have, yeah. to, you have to try and reopen them because usually they're open. The other thing I found very interesting in my reading is that there's an, a, a neur- neuronal um, di- diaphragmatic uh, um, control. Yep. And, yep. And, and you can actually you can actually affect the, the neural diaphragmatic function by yep. just handling the viscera. Yep. So we know that handling bowel and viscera per se can have a negative feedback effect on, on, on the neural control of, of diaphragmatic function. Yep. And then the, the, the other important point is that not only beyond PACU, but sometimes even beyond hospital discharge, some of these changes, for example, impaired response to hypoxia, hypercarbia that you've just elucidated, can actually last for weeks in patients with obstructive sleep apnea per se. And yeah. these are the patients that are at particular risk of. Yeah, and especially if you give them, send them home on opioids or painkillers, which, as we said before, sort of yeah. blunt that drive. Yeah. The first, and they've got a that, that drive's not very great in the first place because yeah. they've already got sleep apnea. Yeah, that's true. Good. Um, so I think you gave us a, a, a really gave us a brief talk about what are the like you know how do we identify which patients pre-op are likely to develop post-operative yeah. primary complications and there's this yeah there's some. Um, Risk factors and there's a scoring system that you correct. You might so, so, so there's um, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of factors that pe- that people have recognised as risk factors, but the the evidence is not always very strong. Even though people have a feeling that it may may affect the patient's post-operative yep. recovery, but patient factors for which there's good evidence that they affect or they can have an effect on post-operative compli- yep. pulmonary complications is age above sixty. Yep. An ASA score of two or more. Okay. Frailty, or as we say, functional dependence, congestive heart failure, and COPD. Okay. Some of those are a bit subjective, aren't they? Frail, yeah. I find frailty, I sort of know it when I see it, but, but yeah. it's, uh, it's everyone's, everyone's opinion of what frailty is, is differs. Okay. If, you, if, you do, if you do get into perioperative medicine yeah. a bit more, it's quite... It's reasonably well, def- and it's okay. not age-based, but the, the, the definitions are, are okay, better. better Maybe another, another, yeah, another time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then as far as investigations go, the only investigation or blood test, if you want to call it that, with good evidence is a low albumin or albumin yeah. below 30. Do you think that's just because it's a sign of cachexia Ex- exactly. and, and poor muscle tone? That's my, It's a yeah. sign of chronically, m- a chronic unwell patient yeah. uh, okay. uh, over time. And then just a few factors for which there's fair evidence is smoking a recent RT, of course, obstructive sleep apnea, pulmonary hypertension, alcohol use, unintentional weight loss of more than 10% over six months, and disseminated cancer. We know that. Okay. Yeah, that, that, was, that all makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? And then investigations that there's a reasonable evidence, but not strong evidence, that they play a role in post-operative complications is uh, hemoglobin below a hundred or anemia, and the important bit that I need to highlight on this is that autologous blood transfusion is an independent risk factor a- for the allogeneic or autologous. Autologous. So from the the patient's own blood or oh, blood oh, bank. Uh, so, uh, from blood bank. Oh, allogeneic. A- allogeneic. Sorry. Yep, okay. Uh, so blood tra- allogeneic blood transfusion. Then. Yep. But blood transfusion per se is an independent risk factor for the development of postoperative pulmonary complications. Yep. Uh, preoperative low sets and then a preoperatively an abnormal chest X-ray. So the evidence for the blood transfusion is because it's a storage lesion, lesion, isn't it? So like blood that's been donated sits in the blood bank for up to forty days, and some of those cells get a bit. Um, um, they, they, lo- they lose their, they, they lose their flexibility, and yeah. they and so some of them like clog up or uh, yeah. release inflammatory things in the lungs. Is that right? They release inflammatory the, things. Yeah, that's the theory. Yeah, yeah. but they're also not as they're not as flexible, flyable, flexible to and go they through small go through capillaries, some, the lung capillaries and things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Okay. So then we we said now. So are there any tools that we can use to 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 determine um, perioperative risk? And and the the one that's mentioned most frequently and actually used most frequently is the one called Arascat, which yep. is from a, from a group in Spain, particularly a guy called uh, Jean Canet. Yep. And. Um, Arascat is an abbreviation for assessment of respiratory risk in surgical patients in Catalonia. And um, it predicts the overall risk of developing a PPC 
and he's looked at seven easily measurable variables. Yep. And the good thing about it is it is it is it it at no cost. It can be done at the patient bedside, and on MD calcs, which most people can yes. just download for free on a on a mobile phone. So we, we were going to have a look at it and see whether we should consider using it in this and routinely help, help, helping decide. You know, yeah. is this patient someone who's going to need ASCU uh, or in a high dependency uh, care afterwards or? So, so I think it could, like it could be useful for discussing risk with the patient and, yes. and, and getting informed consent from the patient, but it may also be helpful to decide where do we put the patient post uh, post-operatively. Post planning, yeah, planning the care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Okay, right. now, now we're getting to the interesting stuff. Is there anything we can do? Because not all our patients run half, half marathons, yep. vegan, and don't smoke. <laughs> so th- there's been quite a bit published on how do we prevent PPCs, but there seems to be a a lack of good evidence, as I previously stated, and and also a lack of consensus because in different parts of the world, different people do different things to try and mitigate this. So in 2020, a group called, uh, a group uh, um, or a publication by a guy called Odor, O-D-O-R, did a, a, a systematic review and they looked at 95 randomized control trials, which included over 18,000 patients. And um, they identified seven interventions that they recognized has probable, uh, leads to a probable okay. reduction. Of so don't hang your head on it, okay, yeah. because some of these may come and go. But at this stage, this is, is, this is like, you know. This is the most. This is what we know. Yeah, this is what we know at the moment. But it will definitely, probably, definitely change at at some stage. And the seven that they identified is um, enhanced recovery pathways or ARS pathways, prophylactic um, mucolytics. I think this is mostly in patients that have underlying. Okay, you're going to talk about the evidence is is low for some of these, aren't you? Oh yes. So, so um, this is just what has been studied. I'll mention. Yeah. So, of the seven, most of them have. There are only two that's got reasonable evidence okay. all the others is low so, so which if, are the low ones so, so the low ones is people who are listening might be thinking oh yeah. we've got, got to use mucolytics but no, actually, no, the evidence no, is low, no 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 evidence is low but yeah so and and remember it's probable reduction in ppcs there's no yeah, yeah. so and eras muco, uh, 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 prophylactic mucolytics post-operative cpap prophylactic respi- prophylactic respiratory physio and epidural anesthesia. So the evidence was fairly low, but the evidence was moderate to good for lung protective ventilation strategies yep. and goal-directed hemodynamic therapy. Okay. And the stress was on good. hemodynamic ser- therapy rather than goal-directed fluid therapy. Yep. And, and we can go into that a bit later. So um, so we're going to talk about the, the, the two categories yes. that have moderate evidence and forget and skip over the low evidence ones. We're going to ignore them completely because I think that as the evidence is low, but also some of them, the reason it interests me as well is because both these we can do something about in theatre as an anaesthetist. Yep. Although I'm interested in the the epidural one about how the evidence for that is low because instinctively I always think if someone has like bad respiratory disease that giving them epidural analgesia rather than lots of opioids for a PCA um, would yes, probably cause but, less respiratory depression. But this is looking on, on at PPCs in all populations as yeah. a whole. And there's definitely something to be said for patients with underlying lung disease. Yes, okay. Yep. All right. So. Anyway, I've... I've taken you off track. No, <laughs> we don't want to argue about epidurals. No. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about the lung preventive protective ventilation so, strategies because yeah. uh, that is interesting, I think, yeah. and maybe a lot of people in the audience have heard about it. Uh, maybe maybe some people haven't heard of these things. So so th- we know that lung protective ventilation strategies is well well established in ICUs for patients with ARDS. Yeah. Um, but the idea was, could could we transfer that knowledge into the into theatre and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and improve their, their ventilation as well? Uh, I want to touch on just want to touch on now how does a ventilator cause injury to the lung? What what exactly happens that it causes injury? And the four ways by which we can cause injury by ventilating patients is volute trauma, which is just alveolar over distension, yep. and barotrauma, which is just increased transpulmonary pressure, yep. and atelectic trauma is this s- cyclic or cyclic uh, um, 
uh, um, opening and closing of alveoli. Yes, yes, so the yes. open and the close. Open yeah, open Presumably that's very causes inflammatory saliva. Indeed, and yeah. that's where we get to biotrauma because you need the alveoli to open and close. You, you, you need the, the distension of the alveolus to release for the type 2 pneumocytes to actually release surfactant. Yep. But overstretching it leads to the release of inflammatory mediators, which yep. can then injure the lungs. And interestingly, these inflammatory mediators can cause injury distant to, to organs distant to the lungs. Yeah, so presumably it's just, yeah, all those inflammatory things cause inflammation elsewhere. Yeah. Yep. Um, so before we go into uh, LPV, uh, lung protective ventilation strategies per se, just there's, there's quite a bit of inconsistency between studies, particularly yep. with regards to the optimal tidal volume, what is optimal PEEP, and which is the best recruitment manoeuvre to use. Um, So looking at at, at all the publications, um, in 2019 in the British Journal of Anesthesia, there's a publication called Lung Protective Ventilation for Surgical Patients, which is an international expert panel that got together and they consisted of um, experts in perioperative care from six countries internationally yep. uh, representing Europe and North America. And um, they came up with consensus recommendations, so expert panel-based consensus recommendations. And the recommendations that they came up with was um, preoperatively, they felt strongly that all patients should have a risk score. Okay, so something like the ARIS-CAT score that you talked about. Something like the ARIS-CAT yep. score. or s- Just be aware that there are others out there as well, yep. but the ARIS-CAT seems to be the most wide, uh, broadly used at the minute. And ventilation should be individualized. There's no yep. one-size-fits-all, as you'll yes. see with as we talk about specifics in, yep. in, in a minute. And So, so for 500 in- mils times 12, people 5. Yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> can't do that for everyone, of course. Oh, okay. No, I'm joking. Yeah, I do individualize it. Okay, yeah. where you go? <laughs> so for induction, and this is particularly again in all patients, this could probably be helpful. But this is particularly for your patient with a higher BMI. Yeah. So they they suggest ramped a uh, ramped position, and we've got beautiful tools. We don't need to run around looking for three pillows or four pillows anymore. We've got an Oxford or a Troop elevation pillow that yep. if I'm got, if I'm having any doubt, I just use it. Yep. And and then they also suggest some form of um, ventilatory support in, 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 in maintaining a, a PEEP, which is either CPAP. So this, is, this is during induction. This is for induction. Yeah. So, so while they're going nas- off to sleep. Yeah. yeah. High flow Keep, nasal oxygen. Try and prevent their, um, their, the bottom of their lungs uh, collapse, collapsing. Correct. To try and keep their lungs open. Yeah, and then intraoperative. So how do you do that? So so when you're doing CPAP, so you put you, you get the APL valve and turn it up to five, or yeah, but just or even remember turn on if, some pressure support. If, if, if you can turn on pressure support, um, you can use high flow nasal oxygen yep. or some other form of non-invasive ventilatory yep. support. What I must say is that just be careful if you turn the APL up too high. The patient often complains and say they can't exhale, they can't breathe. Yep. So if you turn the APL up, APL valve up a little, most patients can cope with that, and I tend to turn it up to about five or just yeah. run and about there, like, four or five. Which, so that's like using CPAP, isn't it? Which yeah. most patients probably won't won't feel too, too yeah. d- much discomfort with that. And sometimes I give like a, some fentanyl as the part of the, to soften them up for induction, and they, they, they tolerate they, the bus. And they... Well, then they stop breathing. <laughs> they don't breathe very much. Um, and then you're trying to tell them to take deep breaths and they sort of ignore you. So one, yeah. one trick is you turn on the pressure support. Yeah. So instead of taking 200 mil tidal volumes, it gives them a bit of extra help. Yeah. Is there any problems blowing up someone's stomach when you're doing all these things with APL valve? And not on APL, not on five. No. But, okay. but obviously um, if you have higher pressures. Yeah. And And... The patient that's awake and, and breathing spontaneously, if they haven't had sedation or muscle relaxant, the, the um, cardiac sphincter, sphincter yeah. is not as, yeah. yeah so, so they so should, shouldn't go into the stomach. They okay. shouldn't go into the stomach is my thinking. So th- the recommendations for intraoperative um, ventilatory pr- protective strategies then that this, this expert panel suggested or came up with. So remember it was an expert panel that used sort of an Adelphi method where they had to have consensus before they public, before they made a recommendation. Yep. And um, so I'll, I'll tell you which ones they couldn't come to any agreement on. Um, but the ones that they could come to an agreement on was low tidal volumes. And they specifically yep. recommended 
tidal volumes of six to eight mil per kilo, but based on ideal body weight. Yeah, so for most people that's going to be, you know, 400 to 550 mils or something, is it? Yeah. Is that right? So it is not large volumes. If mm. you need to improve minute ventilation, it's it's more like going up with rate rather than... Than volume. Than volume. Than tidal volume. Tidal yeah. volume, yeah. Um, PEEP, the consensus was that zero PEEP is bad. Yeah. But zip, zip. Zip, zip is bad. <laughs> but there is no consensus on... Optimal PEEP. Optimal PEEP. Yeah. But it's probably not five for everyone at, it, all, at all stages of the operation. It's probably where you start. Yeah. I, I say five to eight is where you start and then you individualize from there. Um, driving pressure. Now, driving pressure is 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 um is the delta P or the difference between your plateau pressure, yep, and your positive end expiratory pressure. So this is a little bit technical. So the plateau technical. pressure is not routinely not displayed on most anesthetic machines. Correct. It is an ICU, yes, uh, but it's not on most anesthetic machines. And you actually have to, um, if you've got a GE machine, I don't know about the other machines, you have to go into, you have to be in volume control. Mode and you have to go in and set an inspiratory pause of you know ten um, percent of the of the of the breath for it. So it has to you know, has to pause for a short period of time for it to be, to measure the plateau pressure, and then it will tell you on the yeah. screen. So we know that raised driving pressure is associated with increased post-operative pulmonary complications. Yep. Um, some of my reading. Um, the suggestion is that you sh- irrespective of peak pressure, and you don't want peak pressures obviously of 60 and the machine won't allow you to, no. but the important number is probably to try and keep the, the, the driving pressure un- 30 or under, under 30. Oh, the, the plateau pressure under 30 and the driving Plus, pressure. The plateau pressure, sorry, Roger. Yeah. So keeping the plateau pressure under 30 yeah. and the driving pressure probably in the range of about 15 yeah. or less. And so the idea of like you're trying to find the, the optimal sort of peep by... Turning it up or down, and and seeing where the most compliant part of the curve is, and so where the driving pressure is the yeah is the least. And there's this, suggestion the evidence for this is not strong, though, is it? The but, evidence but it, is not strong. Physiologically, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The, so their suggestion was the lowest driving pressure you can manage to achieve the tidal volume that yep. you've worked out this patient. Yep. Requires from the ideal body from ideal body weight. Yep. And then. There's recommendations on the IE ratio or the inspiratory-expiratory ratio. Okay. So the evidence wasn't very strong for that, except in one lung ventilation and pneumoperitoneum okay. laparoscopies, which is a lot of our cases. Yes. So there, there, there is some evidence that um, equal ratio ventilation, meaning a one-on-one IE ratio, yep. is probably beneficial in one lung ventilation and pneumoperitoneum. Okay. And it, that's presumably just because <coughs> when you're... When you spend more time in inspiration, your lungs, yeah, you're close, yeah, your lungs are full and there's less time to collapse. Is that correct? A uh, bit like APRV. Apparently, this leads to you get an increased mean pressure, yeah, which is good, but you get a decreased plateau pressure and a, three, and a, and a decreased driving pressure. Okay, so that's interesting. So, that's something I haven't been doing. The, the so word of caution with IE is yes, bronchospasm. Your, your patients with. That needs uh, a, a long expiratory, a long expiratory time, time. Yeah. or bullous so, disease where you can pop yeah. a lung or something. Yeah, so people with COPD or, yeah. or yeah. people with asthma yeah. may have bronchospasm and, and or require long expiratory times, in which case you should, probably shouldn't go for the yeah. IU. Correct. And then as far as FiO2 or fra- inspired fractional oxygen concentration, uh, definitely consensus that it should be 0.4 or less. Yeah. You want to explain why? So... Because surely more oxygen is better. <laughs> yeah. Um, w- one of the main reasons is that if you have uh, narrow airways and particularly uh, areas of atelectasis or the airway is, is narrowed so that the alveolus beyond that narrowing is, is, is still still got gas yep. in it or oxygen in it, the absorption is faster. So you actually add to atelectasis. We call it yeah. reabsorption atelectasis so, by having high IFO2s. So hypothetically, if the alveolus just got 100% oxygen in it and it's got no nitrogen, the, the oxygen gets absorbed by the blood that's going past really rapidly and then the whole thing collapses. Nothing just oxy- splinted. Yeah, so whereas nitrogen is not very well absorbed. It's pretty... It's pretty um, Hard to to dissolve, and nitrogen is good because it keeps the alveolar, it stays in the alveolar, and it keeps the alveolar pumped up and yeah. open. Yeah. So that's the theory, isn't it? Uh, that is that's the theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 
So and then there are also other yeah. uh, 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 reasons why high oxygen concentrations can injure lungs. We yeah. see that mostly so in babies. And that's right. So giving <coughs> lots of so giving high oxygen during the during theatre and during um, the anaesthetic can lead to hypoxia postoperatively because all the alveolar you get more yeah. alveolar collapse and then they get to recovery on the ward and they've got low sats because yeah, alveolar collapsed. Yeah, theoretically, you also can get free radicals. Yeah, from really high which cause o- inflammation and things. Yeah. yeah, from really high oxygen concentrations. Because we know high oxygen concentrations yeah. for a long time is not good. Yeah, and then, and there's lots of um, studies in ICU patients where they've shown that hyper hyperoxia or too too much oxygen is bad. Yeah, and and NICU as well. You know, that was the first in, place in, they saw. In the it. first place they saw was in neonates. In the neonates, yeah. Yeah, so. It's actually recognised in lung injury due to height. Yeah, they, yeah, it damages their eyes and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, they also looked at pressure control ventilation versus volume control ventilation, and no consensus there. Yep. And then recruitment manoeuvres is an interesting one. Yep. Um, there are so many different ways of doing it, and whether you use pressure as a standard or the volume you do as a as a means of yep. deciding on 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 your on your pressure or your volume that you use for for recruitment. Um, so, so what, so what, what can, is a recruitment maneuver for those who have never heard of it? So a recruitment maneuver is just applying a pressure to the to the to the airway that expands the alve- the alveoli. You're, try, you're trying to re-expand the, re-expand the, the alveoli, alveoli that have, that have collapsed. That have got, yeah, correct. And traditionally, it's involved like applying quite high pressures and blowing hard, really hard on the lungs to try to blow them back up again. It is surprising how long it takes, yeah. can take, and how much pressure is. It's like blowing up a new balloon that's completely flat as yeah. opposed to a balloon that's already a little bit inflated. So this was sort of in vogue for a while, wasn't it? But yeah. now they recognise that you can injure the lung doing it, can't you? Correct. So, so, the, so reinflating the alveoli sounds good, and it's sort of, it is good, because hopefully that will you know, get rid of that atelectasis and, and post-operatively on the ward and in recovery they won't have low problems with their gas exchange, but... If you do this recruitment manoeuvre and it causes stretching injuries and damages the lung, then it's counterproductive as well. So it, yeah. that's that's the concerns, isn't it? Does that sort of summarise the thinking around it? It does summarise yeah. the thinking around it. And the other word of warning is hemodynamic stability yeah. when you're doing a, a manoeuvre because you're increasing the intrathoracic pressure, you're, you're decreasing, and sometimes, depending on the pressure, you can significantly decrease the venous return. Yeah. So the patient that is already... It's a bit like a tension pneumothorax. Yeah. yeah. So heaps of pressure on the chest means that the blood can't um, fill the heart and then you get this cardiovascular collapse Yeah. if you're not careful. So they couldn't reach an agreement, but the only consensus or they could or agreement they could come to is, is, is that um, hand recruitment versus machine recruitment. If you're going to recruit, it's probably always better to use a machine setting yep. or vent or okay. to, to, to achieve so that. It's a bit more gentle, yeah. I presume. Yep. Yeah. And um, definitely with probably after induction, there's a feeling that most people agree with uh, some form of re-expansion after induction. Yep. And then definitely after a disconnection. Okay. Or, for example, if a patient has been head down yep. with high intraperitoneal pressures for two, three hours, um, even if you had PEEP on, probably some form of a... a Recruitment maneuver at the end w- w- when the gas is let out of the abdomen again. Might, yeah, might be useful. Might be useful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're just going back because we've almost finished, haven't we? I yeah. Keep going, or, or come back. If. Okay. So and and the, the lastly, but not, not for for emergence, the 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 feeling is that again the evidence isn't very strong, but a FiO two of zero point eight or less for waking up or emergence yep. is probably advantageous because we know that. Above 0.8, we increase the risk of postoperative atelectasis. Yeah, so we do all this good work for like three hours of the case, trying to prevent atelectasis, and then right at the end, we put them on 100% oxygen <laughs> for yeah. for 10 minutes while we're waking them up, and then they get and they get all this collapse. So they're trying to say leave some nitrogen in the in the ventilation mixture. Yeah. Why do we give someone high FO2? We're worried that when we extubate them, we're going to have some sort of airway catastrophe, and so we want a bit of extra oxygen inside them. In yeah. Ca- in case it takes a bit of time to get their breathing uh, restored. 
that's, that's basically the reason, isn't it? It's basically the reason. It's like yeah. induction. We're buying and theoretically, time. yeah, theoretically, there's, probably, no, well, there's no reason why we couldn't leave yes. them on thirty percent and just wait till they're completely awake. Yeah, like they do in ICU, yeah. <laughs> you know, squeezing hands and writing a writing an essay in a, in a notebook or something, and then we just take it out. <laughs> and with emergency, emergence, or emergency, with emergence, lastly but not least, is there some form of non-invasive ventilatory support? Yeah, and there's even evidence emerging now for prophylactic, yeah, um, non-invasive support. Okay. In the patient that you, you think may have problems, or definitely yep. that's hypoxic on emergence. Yeah, so there's nothing written in there either. But I mean, I mean, uh, you haven't got written down, but it sort of makes sense. And I know we all do it. It's like you know having people sitting up because that helps get the diaphragm oh, yes. down. Yes, it, and it, uh, fully reversed. Yeah. So, so when presumably. I talk about my tips or what I do, yeah, I, I, I are you going to do that? I definitely, okay. definitely talk about about that. Your recipe, that's right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was going to just brief, briefly mention before we move on about the peep as well, like um, because we talked about like finding the right peep, but we haven't sort of really delved into that. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about that when you talk about your recipe. Yeah, you're going to talk about that as well, I am. aren't you? I'm okay. going to I'm going to mention that. So lastly, we should probably mention a goal directed hemodynamic therapy, just because it was one of the other strategies that okay. that was found to have. A, That's a, a whole podcast in itself, but yeah, yeah they, but they recommend doing it. They recommend doing it, and the, the takeaway message here is that whether you use cardiac output with your ultrasound or your art line, whether you do both pulse pressure variation or stroke volume variation, probably doesn't make a big difference as long as you. And presumably, it helps you not give heat too of much fluid, fluid and give them pulmonary edema. And uh, also keeps their lungs and their body, their organs well perfused, so they don't get sort of inflammatory damage or something like that. Is that Correct. Theory? Yeah, and the reason why they call it not goal-directed fluid therapy, but hemodynamic therapy, is that it's not just fluids. You should in, you should use pressors or vasopressors yeah. as well. And and the whole idea. And I think is most anesthetists do do that. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah, all yeah, run yeah. metaramnol yeah. or, yeah. or yeah. some sort of vasopressor often. So I just think, as far as um, <coughs> we probably I don't know how how are we going for time? Forty nah, minutes already. It's all gold. If anyone's stopped listening, then it's their, it's their okay. loss. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll just try and sell my recipe. Now again, um, I told them to skip forward to your recipe. Yeah, so, you, yeah. you could probably argue that. Oh, it's not well, it's such a low evidence, um, but I just—it's good to probably know. It makes me feel better. Yeah, for, yeah. For, for well, what, how do, yeah, how have you integrated all this knowledge? So your I recipe in, might change yeah, in five so, years. But exactly. So what is it now? At the minute, what I do now is that I've got into the habit of checking a patient's uh, um, sets. As soon as they lie down in a supine position, stick a pulse oximeter on, and I want to know what it is without yeah. me having done anything, so that I know what to aim for. If it was ninety four yeah. when I got them, why would I aim for ninety six afterwards? I'm probably not going to improve their lungs with no. with anaesthetic. Um, and then again, individualized, but I do not oxyg- pre oxygenate all patients with a hundred percent. Now, this is yeah. probably none of us have been taught this. We've been taught a hundred percent oxygen denitrogenation was actually the the buzzword, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, and, and try and get as much the, the FRC completely filled with oxygen so that you have anoxic tire or, or uh, yeah. So if tire. you if you they stop breathing and then you can't uh, get an airway, you've yeah. got you've got yeah. s- some yeah. minutes. Minutes, not seconds to play so, with. So, so I'm, I'm not suggesting you pre-oxygenate <laughs> a patient for 30%. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's apneic time versus reabsorption atelectasis as soon as the patient is, is, yeah. is paralyzed. So you aim for like 80% or something? 80%, 90%, that sort of ballpark. But again, yeah. individualized. You have a patient in whom you're going to need 100% oxygen. I'm not suggesting that in yeah. the obese patient that if you're going to use high nasal flow, High, high flow nasal oxygen. Sorry okay. for pro. So it's just so individualize it. It's just yep. individualize it. Yeah, just, or think about it. And then I said I pre-oxygenate with the APL slightly up, not more than five, not to cause the patient discomfort, but again just a bit of resistance to keep that positive end yep. respiratory pressure. And then induction in a ramp position. Yep. Uh, um, about thirty degrees head up is, is, is what is what is suggested. And I try. I mean, I don't measure what is thirty. But I just head up a little yep. bit if I if I can help. It. Yep. And then intraoperatively, what I do as soon as I have my hands free is the patient is, is is asleep and intubated i do i i i, I um try and do a recruitment maneuver yep. i definitely do try and do it if i haven't done it at the start i will do it before they blow air in uh, co2 into the abdomen and so how do you do it with the, with the machine so the machines that are, the machine that i use at king edward is a ge yep. so there is a setting on there where you can just dial in under um well, you, you you can just dial in a a tidal volume. Yep. No, no, a pressure. Sorry, a pressure of thirty five, thirty to thirty five centimeters of water. You can you can change it into whatever you want, yep. and mm-hmm. then you can change the time as well. Yep. 
Okay. So it's under procedures, sorry, under ventilation. Yep. There's a button that says procedures, and under procedures, you then dial in. So what does it do? Is it just slowly turns up the peak? And the total that is volume. probably more physiological way of doing it to slowly turn a st- in a step manner. But I don't do that because our machines can't do it. Okay. So I just dial in a pressure that I aim for 30, 35 centimeter water and a time. So the, the, the consensus statement as far as recruitment was from, from this group was also that um, probably the minimum amount of peak inspiratory pressure that you will re- you require and the, the shortest uh, time in seconds that yep. you're going to need or the fewest number of breaths. Yeah, so you don't overdo it because you don't want to cause volume over, trauma yeah. Or, or... Yeah, correct. Yeah. And um, and then I start with a small amount of PEEP. As we said, the minimum for me is five. So I start with PEEP between five and eight, and then I work my way up from there. Yeah, so do and, I. I go higher, a lot higher. And, and then yeah, it's, you need to go higher in the obese patient and the yeah. patient that's standing on the head, is it? Yeah, for sure. And then small tidal volumes. I, yeah. I, I'm quite a stickler for that. I very yeah. seldom go above eight mole per kilo. So six to eight mil per kilo based on ideal body weight as well. And then FiO2, as we said, less than 0.4 or 0.4. And the patient that's got pneumoperitoneum, again, you individualize, but I try and aim for a a, a, a one-to-one IE ratio. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to... Or equal. equal. It's going to be a a practice changer for me. Equal Equal ratio of ventilation. And then when it comes to recruitment maneuvers, I just individualize again intimate when there's been a disconnection in the circuit and we all get that so if i had a disconnection obviously i'm going to recruit again because just turning on peep without trying to expand those alveoli is is a bit useless because you you can't get them expanded by just turning on peep and then for emergence or for for waking up the patient um one of the things that I, i i remember growing up um, in anesthesia, I used to regularly suction down the tube because the idea was to get rid of all the secretions that's accumulated over time yeah. in the in the airways. But do not suction down the ET you tube because you just the you suck all along. the gas out and you just collapse, collapse them. them. Yeah. yeah. And um, I recruit prior to extubation in the obese patient and the patient under laparoscopy, those who's had a laparoscopy. I do recruit at the end of the procedure yep. in, in, in preparation for extubation. Um, and I just think, I'm guilty of this as well, but I think we should we should, we should revisit the whole idea. Not revisit, it's, it's always been our college guideline that we should use, routinely use neuromuscular mm. blocking agents. Ah, uh, monitoring, sorry. When we Make use. sure there's no fade on the, on the train Exa- yeah. Exactly. Make sure your patient is well reversed. Interestingly, for peak Inspiratory flow, you need a you need a higher TOF ratio than for peak expiratory flow. If you, if you if you get yep. where I'm going with this, what I'm trying to say. Yep. So peak expiratory flow is when you exhale, and a, a TOF ratio of zero point nine is probably effective. But you, for peak inspiratory flow, you actually need a TOF ratio closer to 0.95. Yep. So so and then extubate the uh, wake the patient up and extubate in a ramp position again. Yep. And I run a FiO2 whenever I can of 0.8 or less. Yeah. So I don't try. I usually be 0.8 on extubation yeah. now too. On extubation, Because I yeah. think, because often you don't, it takes a while to wake people up sometimes. Sometimes they wake up after two minutes, but sometimes you're there for a quarter of an hour. Yeah. And if you, you, you just wasted all that effort you, to try and avoid atelectasis by putting them on 100% for 15 minutes. And when I switch the patient, <laughs> if they start breathing on their own and I've reversed them, if I switch that patient now to manual Ventilation. I always make sure my APL is up. Yeah, so ten giving them, giving them some. So peep. maintaining peep yep. in this patient, and then probably as I'm pulling the tube, I take the bag in the other hand and I actually apply CPAP yep. on the tube as I take it out, and I try, irrespective of the sets, I switch to a mask and try and apply the same amount of CPAP to the mask as well until I see what the sets are. Yep. And obviously you can argue the minute you take the mask away and you put the Hudson back on, you've lost it. But it's just, it's just my practice. But often in the first 30 seconds, they're getting getting into the swing of things, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed a change in your, you know, getting less, having less problems in recovery? Or is it, you know, I just, I know this is completely <laughs> subjective. And it, it's completely subjective. It's not evidence-based evidence, at all, level, yeah. level um, 12 evidence. But do you think I, it's better or just makes you feel better? Or do you think it is better? Um, 
I have not done any. Uh, I've not done an audit to say. No, no, but in your yeah, my impression, my, it's an impression and my general observation is yeah. that yeah, obviously, having said all of this, again, patient dependent, patient habit, yeah. body habit is. Sometimes you I, can't help. You can't help it, but I try and restrict my amount of opioids that I use or or, or drugs that I know will affect the patient's respiratory drive, for example. So yes, because that I can think, be a big issue. I think I that's think. a big issue as well uh, yeah. um, to 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 be cautious with with opioids with opioids, yeah, yeah, or other drugs that suppress um, yeah over sedation and and um, yeah uh, nar- narcosis from opioids can be can be an issue. Yeah, yeah. We've blathered on for fifty minutes, and I know you've got a meeting, <laughs> so we could. I might. I'll have a think about. It. I could split it into two uh, podcasts to make it a bit more palatable, or I just we'll just go with it. Excuse I think it's been, a rare, I think it's been gold, but most people are probably driving their car. For, uh, only listen to us for about twenty minutes. That's what I'm told. <laughs> I spoke to a, uh, I spoke to an old um, friend, my best man from my wedding from um, many years ago in New Zealand, and uh, he's a general surgeon back in the NZ. How are you going, Chris? And he, he said he listens to my podcast occasionally, which surprised me because he's a surgeon. Um, but he did tell me it's t- they're too long. <laughs> so that's, where, oh, I, that's where I'm coming from, Lloyd. But okay. Anyway, thank you very much. That, I think that's a really important topic. And like basically anyone who um, gives an anaesthetic, anyone who looks after people who have had surgery, you know, recovery nurses, nurses on the ward, it's all relevant. Surgeons who operate on them, you know, they look, at, um, uh, look after these patients too. So this is all of interest to them so I know some of it was a bit technical uh, but really really fascinating and important topic thanks Lord pleasure thanks thanks for listening everyone please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic you've just listened to. See you again next time. I'd like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. Pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.